0: Yes, there are many homeless people in our area. We should be taking care of them. Many of them are working poor and working. But most of the people that we see certainly around the courthouse, and I see where I live, which is the University District, near the UW, are drug addicts. And it's a terrible problem that we need to, of course, address. But I'm not here to tell you how to address it since I'm a judge. I don't do policy.
1: That Superior Court Judge Jim Rogers, talking about one of the major causes of homelessness in King County. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. King County Superior Court presiding judge, Jim Rogers addressed the Seattle Rotary Club about the major causes of homelessness, the history of drug use, and incarceration levels in King County and in the entire country. Where do we stand on reducing homelessness, crime, and drug addiction when compared to the rest of the country? Here's a fascinating stat. In 1972, there were 200,000 people incarcerated in the entire United States. In 2009, there were over 1.5 million people in prison. Another statistic, King County has one of the lowest rates of violence in the country, but one of the highest property crime rates. I guess I'd rather have my car beat with a baseball bat than myself, so I guess there's some good news there. Also joining us this morning will be Dr. Herb Ellison from an interview I had with him 23 years ago. Dr. Ellison passed away in 2012. He was a leading authority about the Soviet Union and then Russia. He was director of the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. He had some projections to make about the future of Russia. So stand by and hear what he had to say. Back with Judge Jim Rogers in just a moment.
2: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word.
1: King County Superior Court presiding judge Jim Rogers recently addressed the downtown Seattle Rotary Club. He discussed a wide range of issues that affect our region. King County has one of the lowest violent crime rates in the country, but one of the highest property crime rates in the country. Let's pick up with his speech when he was addressing the drug crisis in the United States and in King County.
0: I don't think anyone questions that we have been in the grips of an incredible drug crisis for three decades. It's been going on for decades now. It started in the 80s with the crack wars uh, that gripped our cities and it takes place today. You only need to walk on the city of Seattle and see the drug crisis. Don't call it a homeless crisis. Yes, there are many homeless people in our area. We should be taking care of them. Many of them are working poor and working, but most of the people that we see certainly around the courthouse, and I see where I live, which is the university district, near the UW, are drug addicts. And it's a terrible problem that we need to, of course, address. But I'm not here to tell you how to address it since I'm a judge. I don't do policy. You all know about prohibition. You've read about it. You've studied it. Uh, there was It was a time of incredible violence in the United States, although interestingly not in our area because the uh, the Liquor market was, was cornered by a guy named Roy Olmsted, who was a very famous character in the 20s here, who decided instead of guns, he would get fast boats. And he had freighters, he had boats, he went to Vancouver, brought the liquor down. He had a board of directors that included people like Bill Boeing, so he was well-funded. So we had not too much of a crime problem, but nationally, it was a giant crime problem. Crack wars were more than drug wars. The the violence rate went up incredibly high in the 80s and 90s. Murders went from 8,000 to 24,000. Assaults went from 150,000 to 1,130,000. And the number of reported rapes went up astronomically. On sexual assaults, it's not entirely clear whether the rate of sexual assault went up or finally people started reporting them because prosecutors changed their policies. That number's a little bit in dispute. But in any case, there there was a lot of violence during that time. Why was there so much violence? Well, one reason is the crack was more lucrative than um, many other drugs. Uh, And there was fights over territory. When I went to Georgetown Law School in 85 to 88, I was a public defender in a program they had during the time. And I remember that uh, the drug dealers sold Um, in Ziploc bags that were color-coded so you can go back and have quality complaints. It was a highly organized uh, but violent issue. So uh, there was a lot of fear in the 80s and 90s reflected in the popular culture. I just picked Death Wish with Charles Bronson as one of the many. Uh, There was Dirty Harry. It seemed like it was uh, just a time that where people were scared. So what was the approach to dealing with this? It was punitive. People believed that there were no possible alternatives to incarceration. The Rockefeller drug drug laws created a model for the war on drugs. Um, And from 1973 to 2009, we went from 200,000 incarcerated to 1.5 million people in prison, unprecedented. Blacks were incarcerated at six times the rate of whites and Latinos three times. The increased admission was attributed to drug crimes but the increased time served was attributed to violent crime. And again, people were scared. There was a lot of violence at the time. And as you well know, we were the nation's leader. Two strikes, three strikes in year out. We passed a sex offender indeterminate sentencing. We were a leader in get tough on crime. Was the uh, crime, the incarceration rate partially motivated by racism or a disproportionate result? This is a big topic in criminal justice. Uh, Michelle Alexander wrote a very famous book called The New Jim Crow, and uh, James Foreman Jr., son of a civil rights leader, wrote what's probably the best, in my view, book of all this called Locking Up Our Own, where there is an acknowledgement that racism played some part in the uh, drug crime laws, but that even if you released all of the people that were incarcerated for drug crimes, you'd still have only, really, uh, only reduced incarceration by 50%. Uh, because of all the people arrested for violent crimes. Of course, those two are are linked. And many of the African-American leaders at the time were leaders in trying to get tough on crime. So somehow in the 90s, the crime rate dropped. Social scientists are terrible at predicting when the crime rate goes up and when it comes down. They're always looking in the rearview mirror, trying to figure out what happened. And there are a lot of theories as to why the crime rate may have dropped some of it had to do with, they blame baby boomers. They said the baby boomers were getting older, not committing crimes anymore. Most of the crime, the violent crime, was committed by people around 25 years old. Uh, more sophisticated policing. Increased incarceration rates definitely contributed to the decrease, but it's very controversial as to what it contributed. And then there's some of the crazier theories like cell phones. No one had to fight in the street because you could just call up and go, have people come to your house. More people were on uh, Happy Pills, Uh, the end of leaded gasoline. Here's what uh, did not cause an increase in crime. Poverty did not cause an increase in crime because during the crime drop, we had the recession and the crime drop kept right on going down into the basement all during that time period. The crime rate drop is one of the great improvements to American life that we live with now. We still have historically low crime rate. So nationally, many are still incarcerated and the racial disparity has been enormous Um, and it's very expensive. And this is leading to an unusual, uh, for our time, right, we're all polarized, liberals and conservatives, but the Koch Foundation uh, and the Arnold Foundation, Cut 50 led by Van Jones and Right on Crime Coalition, liberals and conservatives agree on nonviolent crime that that that, uh, incarceration rate needs to be dropped. It's too expensive. And it's frankly not clear after being studied how effective on nonviolent crime, I wanna stress that nonviolent crime is where the agreement is, it actually is. King County was faced in 2000 with having to build a brand new jail. We were uh, out of space in our jail and there was an initiative led by Norm Maling, my former boss, one of the great leaders in King County history and Ron Sims, also a great leader and many others to look at how we could potentially look at de-incarceration, the way they, looked at it was to provide alternatives, probation, uh, treatment that were now back uh, back in vogue um, after having been out of vogue during the crime wave. As a result, we for some years have had the lowest jail incarceration and the lowest juvenile incarceration in the United States of America. Now a little education here on jail versus prison. Prison is when you are sent to the big house for a year and a day or more. And those people typically are much more stable in population because they're staying for a year, they're staying for five, they're staying for life. Jail population is a little more, this is a terrible analogy. Please don't think I'm trivializing incarceration, but it's a little bit like this. If you're staying in jail, you're staying in a hotel. If you're staying in prison, you're staying, in, you're renting an apartment for a year. It's, uh, it's much more in and out flexibility in jail uh, population. But having said that, uh, we have the lowest jail incarceration rate in the United States, largely because we've de-incarcerated on nonviolent offenses, and the lowest juvenile incarceration rate, largely because we have a lot of alternatives. The aftermath of the drug wars, we have incarcerated everybody. Now, where are we at with nonviolent crimes? We've swung the other direction. We're incarcerating nobody. Uh, Mr. Satterberg has announced that he's not charging for personal felony drug possession. I think you all know that. That was in the front page of the Washington post. For some reason, I got less play in Seattle times. I'm not really sure why, but, uh, and so and nonviolent defendants are rarely held pretrial, uh, in Washington state prisons, 75% of the people in your prisons, those are the long stayers, are all violent offenses. Only 6% of them are now, Help for drugs. So really we've de-incarcerated on drugs almost entirely. And today in King County, um, we are still have a historically low violent crime rate, but as you know, we have real problems. Uh, we have one of the highest property crime rates in the United States of America. Here's what I want you to take away. The pendulum swung so far that now a lot of people are saying we shouldn't ever in- incarcerate anyone or arrest anyone on certain kinds of crimes because it causes harm to them. The fact of arrest and incarceration causes harm to them. It's called harm reduction. And what I would say as a judge for a matter of policy, not a matter of politics, that's for you to decide, is that judges need all the tools they can get because there is no one size that fits all for everybody. We need sometimes, The ability to incarcerate somebody we also need the ability to give them alternatives we need drug treatment we need probation in order to be able to uh, tailor the case um, where it fits so you may ask because people are always asking me what's your reaction to seattle is dying and the city prosecutor that's not my court by the way city prosecutor isn't filing charges and of course, Mr. Horsey's talked about the fact that uh, you can shoplift without consequence in a recent cartoon. And my comment is, I'm a judge. I can't comment on these issues. <laughs> All I can tell you and in my last couple minutes, I'm gonna wind up here is that the problems that, we, that I do face with people on the street have to do with safety getting out of, in and out of the King County Courthouse. Every week to two weeks, we have an employee or a juror who's assaulted outside the King County Courthouse, mostly by people who appear to be in the grips of a drug-induced psychosis. There is data that there are mentally ill people in jail, and there's data that 75% of them are mentally ill because of a drug-induced psychosis.
1: That's just part of an address that King County Superior Court presiding judge Jim Rogers made recently to the downtown Seattle Rotary Club. I had a radio show in Seattle in the 1990s that aired on Kixie, a sister station of KKNW. It was also called Voices of Experience then, as it is now. There was a segment I produced called Profiles of Experience. It was sponsored by then US West, who then merged with Quest, and Quest then merged with CenturyLink. You're all caught up now on that front. I interviewed Dr. Herb Ellison. A leading figure in the Soviet and post Soviet Union studies at the University of Washington. Dr. Ellison was known for his enlightening research on the diverse aspects of Soviet history. He received a number of awards for his work, which included the 1996 World Citizen Award. He spent five years as the director of the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Ellison Center for. Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies was created in his honor in 2004. Dr. Ellison retired in 2002 and passed away in October of 2012. At the time of the interview, Boris Yeltsin was technically the first president of what was now referred to as Russia. The old Soviet Union, led by General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev, came to an end in 1991. Now, on to the interview. But first, I will play my introduction of Dr. Ellison when I interviewed him 23 years ago.
2: Our guest this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is Dr. Herbert Ellison, professor of Russian history at the University of Washington and recipient several weeks ago of the 1996 World Citizen Award. Dr. Ellison is the former director of the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies and in 1995, produced a four-part television documentary series called "Messengers from Moscow." Dr. Ellison is considered one of the nation's leading scholars on Russia and the former Soviet Union. Good morning, Dr. Ellison, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. What major factors led to the breakup of the former Soviet Union?
3: There were every there was every sign of uh, deterioration in the uh, Brezhnev for the last ten years from 19. 19- 72 roughly to 1982, and uh, the elements there were declining ideology and the authority of the party, uh, a weakening of the economy to the point of zero growth and a rise of the dissent movement, which was articulating ideas contrary to communist rule. All of that was complicated by an aggressive foreign policy that had led to confrontations in the third world with the United States and its allies and uh, the deterioration of communist power in Eastern Europe, particularly in Poland. Uh, When Gorbachev came to power in 85, he was determined to deal with these problems. He was pressed by the uh, American President Reagan, who had already, uh, in the years before Gorbachev came to power, put a good deal of pressure on the Soviets uh, on arms, third world revolution, and other issues, and of course, ideologically. And uh, I think that he, in his zeal for reform, Uh, undertook measures which were intended to modernize and uh, reform the system, but in fact uh, further weakened it by transferring power away from the party to the state structure, by partial democratization, by the introduction of glasnost and uh, open expression of criticism of the regime. And all of that, I think, unleashed the democratic and nationalist forces that had been there and now uh, mounted a very great pressure against the regime calling for further democratization and finally when a conservative effort in 91 tried to reverse the process of popular transformation from below and quash the leadership of boris yeltsin it had precisely the opposite of the intended effect it hastened the collapse of the whole system and not only did communist power collapsed but also the soviet union broke up into its national constituent parts you're listening to profiles of experience
2: brought to you by caller id from us west caller id from us west shows you who's calling before you answer the phone by displaying the name number date and time of most of your callers even long distance calls with caller id you always know who's calling so you can decide if you want to answer or return the call later caller id another simple answer from us west
1: Before we get back to the interview with Dr. Ellison, I hope you noticed that promo from U.S. West about caller ID, because at that point, caller ID was a new phenomena. As a matter of fact, it took several years for U.S. West to get the legislature to approve caller ID, which obviously is everywhere today. But at that time, in the mid-1990s to the late-1990s, caller ID was very controversial. Now back to the interview with Dr. Ellison.
2: Now, are you confident that uh, democracy will survive in Russia?
3: I have tremendous confidence in the accomplishment of the year since the beginning of 1992, and my own view is that Boris Boris Yeltsin is one of the great uh, reforming political leaders of the 20th century. Uh, He has managed to introduce a market economy, Uh, whatever its deficiencies, he's achieved the basic transformation. Uh, he's introduced a democratic constitutional structure after much struggle that has had two national parliamentary elections and a presidential election successfully, and I think has laid the foundations for a lasting democratic structure. It's still in a, an environment in which many factors threaten it, but I think it's vastly stronger and uh, well-based than anyone could have dreamt possible. In 1992.
2: Dr. Ellison, what were the major forces that drove the former Soviet Union during the Cold War? Was it really fear as a result of World War II or just plain aggression or perhaps something else entirely?
3: Well, I I certainly think the Soviet Union emerged from World War II with a psychology of security anxiety. It had suffered a tremendous uh, set of blows from the German invasion. But the dynamic of the Cold War was not. Just uh, World War II or anxiety. It was, I think, the uh, process set in motion by Lenin in 1917 of uh, declaring that uh, the whole world scene was one of global class struggle and that the Soviet Union was the center of the struggle for a communist transformation. And uh, that was evident in the post war period in the Sovietization of Eastern Europe and the, uh, the support of communist revolution in Asia and throughout the post-war period in a continuing process of military confrontation with the West, the aim of which was not just to to secure Soviet security, but secure an advantage vis-a-vis the West that could uh, be used to press the process of uh, communist revolution. So my own view is that the central factor was really communist ideology, and I was fascinated in the large set of interviews we did for the film, uh, Messengers from Moscow, especially the final one, uh, where we talked to so many of the former leaders of various uh, parts of the Soviet Union, military, political, uh, intellectual, ideological, that uh, they seemed to agree that the ideology was the dynamic and crucial factor in this confrontation. And only when it was dismantled, as it was by Gorbachev, was it really possible to put an end to the Cold War.
2: Do you think President Kennedy handled the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis well?
3: I think he did. I think he did a very good job of uh, confronting what was a very dangerous threat that Khrushchev uh, had mobilized, and uh, that had he not done that, he would have faced many other more serious threats uh, uh, from Khrushchev. Uh, so I think it was well done and uh, carefully handled, and it certainly. Uh, Uh, accomplished its purpose of removing the missiles from Cuba. Uh, It did not, of course, uh, remove Castro from Cuba, but I don't think at that point uh, he had that as an option.
2: Dr. Ellison, what do you think uh, the biggest misunderstanding that Americans have in general, what they have about the Soviet Union and its people?
3: Well, I think that the the difficulty they had during those years was distinguishing between communism and Russians. Uh, without uh, some sense of Russian history and culture, uh, about uh, a sen- without uh, fairly substantial knowledge about the way in which communism came to power and the impact it had on the Russian people and other peoples of the Soviet Union. It was very often the inclination to see uh, that as a Russian creation, and Russians as uh, inevitably imperialist and uh, expansionist and brutal to neighbors, all the rest of it. I think uh, that that uh, misconception still survives to some degree today. People who are attributing to the uh, post-communist democratic regime some of the attitudes and motivations of the old era uh, on the assumption that it wasn't, these weren't removed with the end of communism, that they were in fact uh, part of the Russian character. And I think that's made it difficult to uh, perceive the scope of the transformation of post-communist Russia And it it reflects, as I say, that earlier misapprehension about the link between Russia and communism.
2: Dr. Herbert Ellison, professor of Russian history at the University of Washington. And congratulations, Dr. Ellison, on the World Citizen Award of several weeks ago. And thank you very much for spending time and profiles of experience. Thank you, Paul.
1: The late Dr. Herb Ellison, former chair of the Henry M. Jackson School of International Affairs with the University of Washington and internationally known for his expertise of the Soviet Union and Russia.
2: You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com.
1: That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to King County Superior Court Presiding Judge Jim Rogers and to the late Dr. Herb Ellison of the University of Washington in an interview I had with him 23 years ago. Quotes of the week. I'll do two quotes because they're very short. Ideology separates us. Dreams and anguish bring us together. Eugene Iasko, I think I pronounced that right. And another one. Every day, do something that terrifies you. That's Gloria Steinem. Well, Miss Steinem, I will do something that terrifies me today. I'll watch the evening news. Now, what is Voices of Experience about? People with experience in public affairs, like you heard today, travel, fitness, education, and with an emphasis in entrepreneurship. Also, if you'd like to take the self-employment quiz, you can visit VoicesOfExperience.com. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. There are 20 questions, and the higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. And a big congratulations to the Seattle Seahawks for winning for the second time in a row this season in Philadelphia by the identical score of 17-9. to 9. But this was a much bigger game with the stakes much higher. And uh, a new megastar has emerged from Seattle, and that's D.K. Metcalf. I mean, the connections between him and Russell Wilson is nothing short of phenomenal. And uh, I am very confident going forward the Seahawks will play well and they will prevail in Green Bay this week coming up interesting the game starts at I think 340 our time which is 540 Green Bay time so it's going to be chilly I looked ahead and doesn't look like there's going to be snow but it's going to be very cold so again congratulations to the Seattle Seahawks for a big one yesterday in Philadelphia and let's root hard for them this week have a great rest of the week